this morning our uh, teaching text is from 2 Samuel verses 18, or excuse me, uh, chapter 7, verses 18 through 24, beginning in verse 18. Then David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far, this far? And as if there were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and have made it known to your servant. How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you. As we have heard with our own ears, and who is, and who is like your people, Israel, the nation, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, and to make a name for himself, your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people, Israel, as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. It's the word of the Lord. Might be, you, may, you may be seated. If you want to continue to stand, you can feel free. I've never told, I've never extended that to anybody who just really, you know, the standing desk is a new thing, right? Uh, it's not for me, but if you want to continue to stand and just keep the blood flowing, feel free. Just make sure you're not blocking anybody else, okay? That was a really bad joke. Let's keep it moving. Uh, I was listening to a story this week about the mental makeup of Vladimir Putin. This is something you do when you're me and you're curious about uh, world events. And as always, when you're speculating about the internal life of anyone, let alone a world leader, you're always on uh, slightly um, shaky ground. But I found this journalist's observation about Putin's life somewhat instructive to our current moment. And the journalist was talking about the fact that Putin's father was a product of the USSR, and in that way, he prized being a tough guy. Anybody, anybody know any tough guys in your life? And by that, I mean the people who kind of project toughness, but in, inside, there is no toughness at all. Uh, and because he was a tough guy, Vladimir Putin's dad, uh, this, his father wanted his son to be a tough guy too, right? Because tough guys tend to want to produce tough guys. And the only way that tough guys know how to produce uh, other tough guys is to be mean to them, right? This is how it works. So his father was quite harsh to Vladimir, little Vlad, as I'm sure he was called in the home. Uh, and what we found is that it kind of worked, right? Putin's father was harsh to his son, and Vladimir was a little guy. He still is a little guy. They, I think every time they take a picture of him, he stands on a box or something because he wants to be seen as big or takes his shirt off and rides around on a horse, if you saw that uh, little thing from a few years ago. But he wants to be a big guy. And he believes that any, uh, that any way, the way that you become a big, big guy when you're a little guy is by challenging everyone, no matter their size. And so this, as the story goes, Putin, though a little, Vladimir Putin, though a little guy, would go around the, the schoolyard challenging some of the biggest kids out there to fights. Because in his mind, the antidote to weakness was not, uh, was actually strength, right? If there was some, if he felt some deficit in his own life, the way in which you make up for that deficit is a show of force, aggression, violence even. 
Now, that makes sense, right? Given what we're experiencing now on the world stage. But it's not a particularly healthy way for a normal person to go about their life, is it? It's not particularly healthy, but it is normal. You see, you kind of fast forward to today, and what is, what's happening on the world stage is, va- is basically some, the, a little guy who feels maybe pushed into a corner a little bit is using military power as a means of, co- of coercing a kind of direct result. And his desire is to project strength in Europe as a means, uh, and so he's waging the first land war in Europe in, in a generation, multiple generations. Now, while we can see the ramifications of this way of thinking, this kind of hubris, right? This, this notion that, that in order to make up for weakness, one must project strength. We can, we can see the flaw in it. The fact of the matter is, is that this is the kind of way that most of the heads of uh, the peoples of the earth throughout the history of the world have conducted themselves, right? This is the way that kings and monarchs were expected to act. They projected strength out into the world, and we have a history in, in, the, in the globe of mostly little men projecting strength as a means of making up for their insecurities and weaknesses. And this is true all the way back even into the Greco-Roman world, to the day in which Jesus and the disciples and, and even parts of the Old Testament in which people were alive. You know, in the Greco-Roman world, in the Greek-speaking world, humility as a virtue that we think of as a virtue was not considered a virtue. Humility was considered a vice because it was believed that if someone had humility, if they displayed humility, it would lead to a lack of courage. This is what they thought. And so Greco-Roman culture prized prized in the place of humility, in the place of humility, this virtue that they called philotomia. Now, philotomia basically means the love of honor or reputation. So in that place of humility, they said the thing that one must go after is the love of honor or reputation. Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher, commented that philotomia was the pleasantest thing one could compliment and attain for oneself, right? And this desire for honor and reputation produced some pretty devastating results in the world. Most of us in the room are, are familiar with Julius Caesar, but, but, but before he was ever Caesar in Rome, he was uh, a slightly disgraced politician and military man. And in order to rehabilitate his image in the Roman Republic, in order to kind of pad his stats, as it were, he took his army up into the unconquered regions of Gaul, which is modern-day Western Europe. And when he was there, for no particular reason other than simply to build his honor, he uh, killed one million Gauls and enslaved a million more. For no reason, just to kind of pad his stats, to build his honor. Today, Caesar would have been considered a genocidal maniac, right? But in in the Greco-Roman culture of his day, this was just a way to kind of build your honor, that you're a great conqueror, that you're you're a defeater of people, right? His desire for this philotomia as a Roman general was so pronounced that he was willing to run over and kill people in order to make this happen. 
You see, for people like Julius Caesar and for people like Vladimir Putin, we see the devastating effects of the desire for strength and honor and reputation when you have a military that you can, that you can deploy towards that end. Now, why am I talking about this this morning, right? I'm talking about it because I want to highlight for us how weird it is that King David, a monarch in his own right, displayed humility. How odd it is that a military ruler, a, a proficient military campaigner like David, would be so adamantly humble in so many circumstances. You see, David's humility throughout the story of his becoming king and even, in, in many cases, in the ways in which he was king, displayed a type of humility that was very foreign in the context of the world in which he lived. You see, one of the primary problems with King Saul that came before David and Solomon that came after him was that there was an arrogance in those kings that eventually brought them down entirely. They didn't believe that they were, their, their, uh, their rule was dependent on God, and they would do things like not consult with God in prayer before they made military decisions, or they would, uh, they would consult witches and do all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, basically, they, they began to see their rule as an outworking of their own interests. But David had this incredible ability as king to not simply look to his own interests or his own desires, but to, but to stand before God in a humble posture and acknowledge the fact that he was not primarily living out his own interests and desires as the, the king of Israel, but rather that he had the, the agenda of God, first and foremost, that he had to walk out. You see, David would often inquire of the Lord before he made major decisions. He showed deference and dependence on the, on, the on the advice of the prophets before he moved very often to do anything. And probably most important of all, David responded with humility when he was given news that he did not like. In our teaching text for today, after David becomes king, one of the first things he wants to do is to build a great temple for, for Yahweh, for God. And he actually says at the beginning of this passage, a few uh, verses up, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Let's build God a house. Let's build him the best house possible. And he goes to the prophet Nathan, and the prophet Nathan, and he tells the prophet Nathan, Nathan, let's build the Lord a house. We got the trees, right? And Nathan says, do it. And then uh, just one verse later, the word of the Lord comes to Nathan, and he says, go to David and tell him, you are not to build my house, but I'm going to build David's line, his lineage, into a great family. And so Nathan comes back to David, and he says, the Lord doesn't want you to build his house. He's actually going to raise up one of your offspring to do that. But you are to be God's man in this time for this purpose. And after Nathan tells him this, this is what we hear David say again in verse 18, beginning in the second half of verse 18. Who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? What more can David say to you? 
for you know your servant, sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done these great things and made it known to your servant. How great you are, sovereign Lord. There was no one like you and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. Notice David's humility here. This is not a king who believes that he is the sovereign over everything, right? This is a king who has humbly submitted himself to a power or authority that is over him. David goes on in this passage that you heard earlier to, to ascribe great things to God and all the great things that have happened to him to God's hand. He sees his life in some way as being humbly dependent on the things that God has and will do for him. And it is this humility, it is precisely this humility, more than it is David's prowess as a military leader or his ingenuity as a leader of people, right, just generally, it is his humility, it's his ability to be dependent on God that makes him the greatest king that Israel ever had. Now, David is not perfect, though. We know this, right? In fact, he's just as flawed as anyone else in all of the Old Testament. I believe Pastor Steve spoke last week in detail about David's greatest mistake in the taking of Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah. But what I want to point out today is not the sin that David committed, as atrocious as it is, but the way in which David responds to that sin when confronted by that same prophet, Nathan, again. David responds to Nathan's word to him when Nathan comes to him and says and, and tells him that the Lord sees what you have done, right, in effect. David's words to the prophet Nathan are simply, I have sinned against the Lord. At least that's what we get in the text of 2 Samuel. He says, I, I have sinned against the Lord. In Psalm 51, we get a more prolonged example of what was going on in David's heart and mind as he was convicted, as he was brought, as the sin was brought right before his face by the prophet. Now, David is, again, no paragon of virtue, right, in the story. David uh, is meant to point out to all of us the fact that we are broken and the fact that we do do atrocious things at times. But it is only David's ability to repent of this sin that allows him to continue to be the person that God would have him to be in that role. Because without humility, David could have never repented. Because humility has this way of blinding us to our own, I mean, not humility, but pride has this way of blinding us to our own mistakes, to our own sin. You see, David could have, it was well within David's power to simply look at Nathan and go, nope, take that guy out back, have him killed, let's keep it moving, right? He could have gone Vladimir Putin on him, right? Right in that very moment. He could have done whatever he wanted to do. But yet he was able to display some type of humility, despite the atrocious things that he did, that allowed him to turn from his sin, to allow his eyes to be opened, and to allow God to reorient his heart back, uh, David's heart back to God. 
You see, it's easy to, when we encounter difficulties, to try and just overcome our weakness with strength, with, the sh- with sheer force of our will, to try to use our power that we have to make things a certain way, to try to look away from our own sin and dysfunction and just try to and just try to move past it or move through it. But it takes true humility to look at it. Have you ever known anybody in your life that when confronted with a mistake they made just gets rageful? You ever met anybody like that? That is a different posture, right? That, that is a desire to use power or strength in order to manipulate a situation rather than in humility being able to actually step in under that mistake and take responsibility for it. You see, David had this ability, despite all the mistakes he made, to be a humble person. You see, if David had not done this, if he had not uh, acted in humility toward the prophet, God would have taken everything away from him in that very moment. Now, David bears the consequences of not only this sin, but other sins that he commits throughout the end of his life. He, he doesn't get out scot-free. But he is able, to, into his old age, to maintain a heart that is tender because of his ability to be humble. You see, in the kingdom of God, the only antidote for weakness and the failures of our own sins is humility. Because to be able to humbly confess and surrender our lives to God in Christ is the only antidote for our weakness. You see, you will not overcome your weakness by strength, by knowledge, by your own ingenuity. It will eat your lunch. You will certainly not overcome your weakness through avoidance or just sweeping it under the rug, right? In God's kingdom, humility is a virtue because it is only through surrender that we overcome our weakness. It is only through surrender to the will of God and to Jesus that we're able, that our sin is able to be dealt with. In fact, Jesus makes this quite clear, that it is only the humble or the meek, what he calls the meek, that will be able to see clearly enough to live in the kingdom of God. This isn't that you have to acquire a level of humility in order to be uh, admitted entrance. It's that pride is such a blinding force that if you don't learn humility, you'll, you'll miss it. You won't see the kingdom when it's right in front of you, and you'll miss it. And so you have to grow meek in order to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear in order to be a citizen of God's kingdom, in order to accept his grace, we must have this posture of humility. Otherwise, we can't accept his grace. Pride is a universal blinding force. And it causes us not to admit our weakness, but to kind of try and gloss over our weakness with strength or push through or abuse others as a means of covering things up. But it never works. It never works. Rather, the admonition of our own weakness and sin and, the, and, our depend, and claiming our dependence on God, on Jesus, is the only way forward. 
That's the only way that God can deal with our sin, and it's the only way that he can deal with our own weakness. Which is why in the New Testament we hear the Apostle Paul say things like this in 2 Corinthians 12, when he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Why is that? Because that makes no sense to most people, right? No, it's when I am strong that I am strong. That's when I'm strong. Weakness is something that's to be put aside. It's to be uh, ignored. It's to be overcome. It's not to be admitted. It's not, even t- it's not to be gloried in, my weakness. But in the economy of the kingdom of God, weakness is, a, the, the acknowledgement of weakness is about learning dependence on the power and provision of God rather than on my own ability to make my life come out right. You see, through humble acceptance of my own weakness, I am able to learn and lean on the power, the goodness, and the love of God in Christ. Otherwise, it's just me. It's just you. Out there on your own, trying to make it. Trying to, like, with shoestring and duct tape, trying to, like, Make a life that looks good on the, on the outside, but on the inside is just totally a wreck. You see, if we live off our own steam, if we try through force or through effort to cover over our weakness or to push through our weakness, what ends up happening is that we just, are, we just begin doing what looks good in our own eyes. If we are not humble, if we're not willing to accept correction and to humbly acknowledge our own failures and shortcomings, then life will inevitably become only about what I can attain and what I can do in my own power. And we may not be heads of state, and we may not have little military forces that we can deploy out into the world, but I assure you, with, with that self driven focus, and with that lack of humility, you and I, if we live our lives like that out into the world, will make other people's lives a living hell. Because as we work out our own little kingdoms under our own little powers, things will not go well for the others that are in in connection to us. Because it becomes so difficult to see other people clearly and to love other people well if you are not willing to accept the fact that you are loved for your shortcomings and your failures and in the midst of your sin because of Christ. If you do not have that understanding, you are going to train wreck people. You're going to run right over them because you're going to think what you need to do is conform to my ideals of what reality should be. But if you're humble enough, to see that God does not ask you to conform to his ideals of reality. Rather, he lays down his life for you that you might have his righteousness. You begin to move out into the world with grace and love and forgiveness rather than expectation. And humility is the key. Humility is the key. But it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to live like that. It's not our default wiring. Eugene Peterson says it this way. He says, it's difficult to recognize pride as a sin when it is held up on every side as a virtue. 
urged as profitable and rewarded as an achievement. You see, if you're going to live humbly in this world, you're going to live in a countercultural manner. You're going to live in a way that the people around you are not living. At times, it's going to look like you're the one that's getting run over. When in fact, you're the one who's winning in a kingdom sense. But how do we learn how to be humble? That's a hard question, right? How do we learn how to be humble? I know, I know of only one way to learn humility. And that is to look to Jesus who shows us the way of humility, who shows us a better way of living. David was said to be a man after God's own heart. And in, that, and in the way in which he embraces humility in his life, at those times in which he's able to do that, yeah, he's a man after God's own heart. But he's imperfect. But Jesus is the heart and character of God put on display in the world as a human being for us. Jesus is the visible representation of the heart of God. And he displays for us what humility looks like. And the humility he displays is staggering, isn't it? In the Old, in the Old Testament, all the prophecies about the coming one, about the, uh, about the Messiah, about Jesus, say things like, he is a root out of dry ground. There is nothing, uh, there's nothing attractive about him, and yet he's the one. We, and then we see in Jesus' life the fact that he is not out here trying to make a name for himself. He's not, he's not trying to uh, insecurely make up for, for a deficit in his own life. There's nothing particularly powerful or stately about Jesus. Yes, the ministry that he does is incredible and miraculous, but Jesus' own life is nothing to, nothing to talk about, really. He's born to a poor family in a small and forgotten region of Israel. His ministry, while amazing, is not overwhelmingly powerful in a political sense. He spends time with disgraced women, with children, with sinners, people who can't give him anything in return. He builds his movement on the periphery of society. He only comes to the center of power one time, and as soon as he does that, they kill him. Right? And even, when, even then, when he comes into the seat of power, he rides a donkey. He doesn't even get, you know, this is, he, <laughs> he's barely on a Toyota, right? He's barely driving into town in a Toyota. At the very end of his life, there's no other story, I think, that, that personifies Jesus' humility more than the story of his washing of the feet of the disciples in the upper room. If the band could come up, it'd be great. If you're familiar with the story, you know that, there's, that Jesus has a last Passover meal with his disciples before he's taken into custody by the Romans and eventually paraded around to all the political authorities of his day and then killed. But as his disciples come into this upper room where they're about to have this Passover meal together, Jesus gets down, he wraps a towel around his waist, he gets down... And he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Which, if you're familiar, it's, it's true in our day. 
just as much as it was true in his day in the Middle East, at least, the feet are considered to be a defiled part of the body because they're dirty and they. So even today, if you were ever in the Middle East, don't put your feet up on a table.